It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, since we are in the middle of basketball limbo for really the first time we've had lockouts and things like that but it's not the off season it's not the mid we don't know what it is I'm just going to keep going with these historical sort of retrospectives on different topics and today the topic is as you can tell by the title greatest six men in NBA history specifically the peak the best seasons the seasons where you actually qualify as a sixth man. So this isn't about career. It's not about the number of seasons you rack up as a sixth man. This is really just the greatest six-man seasons we've seen. Of course, this won't be based on rewards or sixth-man voting rewards, awards, or sixth-man voting or anything like that. It's going to be about the totality of the player, his impact on offense and defense, the kind of standard stuff as we size up, you know, how much impact a player is having on the court. And of course, those awards historically have been given to scorers. These these kind of microwave Vinnie Johnson scoring guys that come off the bench for an instant hit of offense. And I think the reason for that is part and parcel to the idea of redundancy, to the idea of scaling up your skills together on offense and basketball. You know, we talk about this all the time, but in this case, if you've got two sort of lead drivers of your starting unit and you want to balance them with three-point shooters or big men who play defense or things of this nature, three and D guys now, of course, for the last decade or two, then if you have a scorer who doesn't have other abilities, he kind of gets moved to the bench to play with the second unit or to make sure you always have a guy who can fill it up out there. As we go through the list, we will see uh, an abundance of these bench scores. Of course, they were there throughout NBA history and, you know, scoring is really valuable in basketball. So they are certainly some of the best sixth men ever, the scoring heavy type. But there are also guys who I think have been overlooked and we'll certainly get to them as we go through this list. It was a broad exercise for me to go through these seasons much broader than I wanted. It took quite a while, but just a few names to get to if you're interested that that maybe aren't recognized a lot before we get to the honorable mentions. Uh, one of them being Robert Ory, 2000-2001 with Los Angeles. I think Robert Ory's a better player than most people give him credit for. On one hand, he always gets into the rings conversation because he has seven And he was not a leading man kind of player. He was not an all-star kind of player. But he had a number of really good seasons in his career. And I don't think him going to the bench for a couple seasons in those championship situations in L.A. really changed that all that much. He was a stretch four who didn't take stuff off the table on offense. He was a good extra passer. 
and then a really strong defender at a position that needed strong defense during that era. So just want to throw his name out there for my criteria before I rattle off some other names. Now, let me rattle off some other names, and then we'll we'll do the criteria. So another interesting six-man season that came up was Marcus Camby's 1999, mostly because his run in the playoffs that year to the finals with the Knicks was perhaps the best he ever played. I mean, later when he rounded out into form and won awards and defensive player of the year like that, which I think was a little bit too focused on the box score numbers and his block, you know, his ability to block shots and things like that. But that was a really, really fantastic stretch for Camby in 1999 in the postseason there. Another interesting run. Uh, Nate McMillan, another sort of general guy who has flown under the radar, who from 1993 to 1995 had these huge box plus minus numbers and uh, sort of impact numbers. We have access to the regular season plus minus data then, but he was never a guy who played huge minutes. He, He kind of was the backup to Gary Payton, if you will, for the heart of his years there in Seattle, Mr. Sonic. And sometimes they would play him at two next to Peyton as well. But McMillan, just another one of these like very efficient under the radar. Is he kind of a sub all-star player? You know, if I did that sub all-star exercise back then, would guys like Robert Ory and Nate McMillan crack the list? I don't know how many times they cracked the list, but some of these seasons would be close. You know, McMillan, again, nice passer could shoot it a little bit, didn't try to do too much on offense, and a kind of versatile, very strong defender on the other end. Uh, Before he became sort of a a shooting, scoring machine, made the All-Star game in 2004, the year before 2003, Michael Redd came off the bench, just hitting 44% of his threes casually in 28 minutes a game en route to uh, super efficient scoring. That was another interesting one. And then one more kind of extra name that's an interesting season that doesn't quite make the honorable mention. I loved watching him play back with the Blazers. Clifford Robinson, uh, Uncle Spliffy, he, I don't think he had sort of the defense and all-around game to warrant it, but he was a sort of an interesting kind of super bench player back in 1993 for the Blazers. Okay, let's get to the honorable mentions and then we'll make my way through this list. Once again, the criteria. Well, I guess I didn't really get to the criteria a second ago, so it'll be for the first time. Again, based on how you how you play overall, but to qualify, that's the key. To qualify, you need to essentially uh, be a six-man in the regular season and the playoffs. So it can't be one of these situations where you start 10 or 20 games in the regular season out of 80 and then when you get to the playoffs, you start every game because really you're you know that integral to the starting unit. So for the spirit of the exercise, I tried to look at seasons where a player did not start half of his games in the regular season and then remained a sixth man in the postseason. Okay, some honorable mentions. Antoine Jameson in 2004, his season with the Dallas Mavericks. He's a starter in the surrounding years. He makes the all-star game in 2005 and then again in 2008 he is this sort of very offensive centric you know not particularly good defensive player he may have been a tweener as a scout can you can you really 
play him as a big at the power forward position back in those days. And his single season in Dallas, I don't love it. It didn't blow me away, but I think he had enough offensive chops as a player to kind of be in this ballpark and be in this consideration. Uh, Essentially, we're still talking about like sub all-star players. We will get all the way up to all NBA level players coming off the bench, which is a really kind of cool background background discussion that I'll try to keep monitoring as we go through this list. How, you know, how good can someone be coming off the bench in the NBA? What is the what is the best player? What's the highest level of player we've seen continue to take a role off the bench and why? So we'll keep that in mind as we go through. Jamison in his case, he went to an incredibly uh offensively stacked Dallas Mavericks team. Remember that's the Dirk Nowitzki Steve Nash team. I think that was one of the years where they were trying to run Nowitzki at center and just get all these scores out on the court around these guys with the wily Don Nelson running the ship. So Antoine Jamison will throw his name out there. Uh, Danny Manning, another one. Danny Manning made the all-star team in 1993 and 1994. Then he went to Phoenix in 1995 and he had a stretch in Phoenix where he was sort of their super sixth man from 1995 to 1998. He ends up winning Sixth man of the year in 1998, although I think for my money, I did a little retro scouting here, but I think for my money, Danny Manning, 95 to 97 or 95 and 96 were probably better sixth man seasons than all the way out in 1998 when he finally won it. And again, we know that happens sometimes if your numbers break a certain way or if your points per game peak or something like that, or if you're overdue for the award, you might finally get it. But to put it in perspective, Manning from 1995 to 1997, his uh, three postseasons with the Suns, he averaged 22 points per 75, uh, plus 3% true shooting, really good box plus minus numbers in my model, about plus three and a half in those years. So that's a really nice, solid player. But I do think the box score overlooks his defensive liability that he kind of brings to the table. He was another one of these guys who was very skilled, stood about 6'10", 6'9", 6'10", had really nice ball skills, could take it with either hand, very comfortable getting his body in, you know, downhill floating positions coming into the lane, nice little touch. He was a good passer. So a lot of positives on offense that created a lot of value for him. But on defense, I mean, teams would play him at five, teams would play him at four. You could try to play him at three, with a big lineup back then, but I don't think either of those were uh, very exciting options defensively, and so he kind of ends up giving up a lot of value there that keeps him in this sub-all-star discussion. Speaking of sub-all-star discussion, Lou Williams, our current version of Lou Williams last year and this year with the Clippers, is maybe the most extreme example I can think of who's like this. He is a very talented offensive player. Uh, He's not an elite offensive player, of course, but he's really good if you think about how he can use the pick and roll, just the way he carves up teams, scoring out of it and hitting the roll men. Again, he's not a high-level passer, but a good enough passer in the pick and roll to just punish you, especially weaker teams or second units. And so you're left with a guy in Lou Williams who is sort of this explosive offensive player off the bench who can also lead a unit beyond just his scoring. But on the defensive side, I think he gives so much back. 
He doesn't give it all back. Lou Williams is still a good player, I think, if you listen to the sub-all-star podcast this year and last year. I go into more detail of sort of how he fits in that tier of the league, but another guy who is a very good six-man who doesn't quite make the cut here. I'm realizing I usually tell some kind of long-winded anecdote and then spend 10 or 20 minutes setting up the criteria and things like that, and we're already just flying through this list today. So, you know, this is this is my attempt to rein it in. Maybe this is the efficiency of quarantine. I don't know. Um, <laughs> where Where was I on this list of honorable mentions? We did Lou Williams. Here's another one who... Now we're starting to get toward the guys who I really think are candidates for the top 10 six-man peaks. These are the guys who, when I started this exercise, kind of came to mind. You know, oh, these are going to be candidates. These are really good six-man seasons. The first one is Jason Terry, 2009 to 2011 when he goes to Dallas. Well, he's in Dallas, and then he kind of transitions to this six-man role where if you remember that 2011 championship Dallas team, and I've written about this before, I've discussed it, this was a team that was really balanced and well-built around Dirk Nowitzki. But it wasn't built around Dirk Nowitzki in the way we build a team heliocentrically around Steve Nash or LeBron James or someone who has the ball all the time and chooses between scoring or setting up a teammate. In that case... Dirk was just a phenomenal scorer, and he was a big man who could space. So Dallas filled out that starting lineup with the right balance between shooters, uh, additional ball handlers, and playmakers like Jason Kidd, and then not only is Kidd very good on defense, but you have Tyson Chandler. Well, that left them kind of wanting another scoring fulcrum to work through. And that player became or or ended up being Jason Terry, who would come off the bench, play big minutes, second leading scorer during the postseason, had a very good postseason run. In fact, his three-year postseason averages, just from the scoring perspective, about 21 to 22 points per 75 and about plus three to plus four percent true shooting. If If you're new to the show and you're not familiar, why do I keep saying per 75 and you know, plus three or whatever. Simple concept. It's just the rate at which you score instead of per 100 possessions, it's converted just to per 75 because stars typically play that many minutes. So it kind of gives us a similar feel over time uh, instead of saying like he averaged 15.7 assists per 100 possessions. So that's it. When I talk about scoring rate, I'm usually talking about per 75 possessions. And then of course, efficiency. If you're 60%, true shooting on the season and the league average is 55, you're plus five. It's just relative to your opponent. This allows us to compare shooting in different environments across different seasons. And also, you know, if you play defenses in the playoffs that, you know, give up 52% true shooting on average instead of 55, we can make an adjustment for that. So that's really nice second level scoring from Jason Terry to be at around 22 plus four. He was a decent passer as well. And what this allowed is for him to come in and be another secondary creator for Dallas. Dallas, that season wasn't really built on having an all-time level offense. They were a more balanced team and they weren't built on having, you know, Dirk again was not a monster high-level creator, 
he was a monster high-level scorer, of course. If you want more on Dirk, you can go back to episode 50 that I just did uh, on the revisiting the greatest scorers of all time and Dirk's rightful place. Very high up on that list as an incredible scorer. So that's Jason Terry. Another championship-type six-man who's in this conversation for maybe being one of the top 10 six-men peaks ever is Michael Cooper. I don't think any of these guys yet, Terry, Cooper, any of these guys, have had seasons that are up at the all-star level. But when we're talking about that sub-all-star concept, these guys are in the sweet spot. You know, that's why that idea is something I wanted to bring to the forefront. We we count up all the stars by looking at the all-star team. Oh, 20 guys made it, 25. Well, I guess more than 20 now. 25 guys made it, 27 or 28, depending on injury replacements. And we think about those guys in one tier and everyone else is kind of in another tier. But, you know, just even that next layer of player can have a much greater impact moving the needle for key teams than say, an average player or someone slightly below average. Cooper was a career six-man, basically. Never really was a starter, but he did play big minutes. He played about 29 to 34 minutes per game off the bench from 1984 to 1987 during his best seasons. His box plus minus in my model during those years was around plus three. So again, we're talking about You know, if you've listened to the show, if you're familiar with these numbers, we're talking about all-star kind of seasons, sub-all-star, all-star kind of seasons. Like, these are good, positive numbers that'll put you in the top, you know, 20, 30 in the league, up at the top of the leaderboard, things like that. He was not a monster scorer that wasn't his game. He got more value from his defense, a good on-ball defender, but also at 6'5 or so with really long arms, he was rangy enough to bring a little rim protection from the weak side. He could switch and guard different defenders. So he could guard your point of attack point guards. But then like when the Lakers matched up with the Celtics, he could try to bang around a little bit with Larry Bird or try to bother Larry Bird on the perimeter, chase him around screens. But back in that era, I don't think uh, a guy like Michael Cooper was a dominant or big time defensive player. Those players mostly big men, are good enough just to be an all-star just with your defensive chops. In Cooper's case, I think you're talking about a guy who is a positive, a good perimeter defender, so he's got some positive value there. And then he, this is back in a time where you didn't use the three-point shot that much, but he was a good outside shooter. He was a good free throw, a really good free throw shooter. He just had a nice stroke. And so he could space the floor a little bit. He didn't try to do too much. He was a very good passer. He essentially functioned as the backup point guard for the Lakers, even though Magic, of course, played, you know, what did you play back then, like 38, 40 minutes a game as a lead guy. But he played next to Magic a lot. Anytime Magic was out of the lineup or on the bench, it gave the Lakers a really competent backup point guard. He wasn't a phenomenal passer, but he was a very good passer, could handle the ball. They could still get some stuff going in transition with him. And so, really good defender, a little positive offense. That kind of gets you in this conversation. Let's stick with that archetype, kind of. And I've mentioned him before. You can, again, go back and listen to the Sub All-Star podcast. 
and that's Marcus Smart from this this season. I think Marcus Smart this season is a better defender than Cooper was relative to his era. I think he's a phenomenal perimeter defender right now. And if you look at his scoring numbers, they're kind of funny. You know, scoring rate of 15, and he's like 5% below league average in true shooting because he's not a very good scorer. He's not out there to score. But his offense actually has some kind of value. I mean, I don't know how positive I would say this is because of the rest of what I just mentioned, but he is the Celtics' best playmaker or passer right now. Probably the best passer, that's a better way to say it. But he has also learned to run the pick and roll, make certain passes out of pick and roll, hit roll men, and he's a good extra passer. He's, he's just, he has value there on these high-level teams. And the other thing he does is he can now at least shoot threes enough to space the floor or keep you honest. So it's about 35%. Um, you know, since he's kind of fixed his stroke and injuries to his hand have healed in the last couple seasons and things like that. And so that combination for Marcus Smart, he doesn't have the most phenomenal advanced numbers. For instance, his box plus minus in my model is a little bit lower than Cooper. But if I actually had to pick, I think I would lean more toward Marcus across all situations. Obviously, there's going to be some situations where you might take Cooper. And Cooper is a really fun player because if you were to grant him, you know, the three-point shooting of the modern game and you say, hey, instead of taking these long twos and only taking like one or two threes a game, what if you worked on that shot? Then you could have a guy here who's similar to Smart on defense. Again, I, I think Marcus's physical tools are incredible. He can switch one through five, but or certainly one through four. But um, Cooper's offensive ceiling is probably higher and then that makes his overall ceiling higher but these are the types of players who often get overlooked when we talk about you know six man of the year nothing epitomizes this more than Cooper winning the defensive player of the year in 1987 and then finishing third in six man of the year I mean if you are good enough to win defensive player of the year which Again, I don't think is warranted in that era for probably any perimeter player. But if you're good enough to get that recognition amongst the trees of Mark Eaton and Olajuwon and all these other sort of bruising big men that parole the paint, I would think that you got to be an all-star level player at the least and therefore a very strong candidate, if not a slam dunk, to win sixth man of the year. Cooper finished third in 1987 in six-man-of-the-year voting. There were 67 votes put in. He got seven of them. 19 went to Vinnie Johnson, the microwave. I love the microwave Vinnie Johnson as a bench scorer, by the way. Don't think he has enough chops in terms of efficiency in the rest of his game. You know The fact that he was undersized, all that stuff, to really get up into the upper echelon of this discussion, the top 10 of this discussion, but he finished second that year with 19 votes. And then the majority vote getter, the big winner is Ricky Pierce for Milwaukee. Now, Ricky Pierce is also a guy who is a candidate here for me to crack the top 10. I do think he's another sub all-star kind of player. He was a huge scorer. 
Huge. If you're not familiar with Ricky Pierce as a player, kind of had like a a loose, high dribble that he, you know, could take it either way with left hand or right hand, but a very smooth, under-controlled player. Otherwise, he had a very high release on his shot, and so he would use jab step, triple step, little rip-throughs and things like that to just simply blow by people. Again, he's not like lightning quick, but it was the combination of the technique of the jab and the rip-through, the high release, the way he'd use his body, and that allowed him to get get going toward the hoop, get some contact, or take a dribble or two, spin back to the middle, really high release stuff. And he was a good shooter. He was a really good shooter. So he would try to get, as guards would do back then, you know, to a spot in the mid-range and pull up and get his release off, kind of living from 14 to 20 feet. He was only about 6'4". Seemed like he had a long wingspan. Again, that high release. Even had a little post game where he'd, you know, throw a leaner or a hook into you every once in a while by powering you. But he's an interesting guy because, again, you look at him play and he's got so much out near the three-point line that's long twos, and you think, man, if he's that good of a shooter, what happens if he just steps back behind the line and hits like 36, 37, 38% of these? You know, to put it into perspective, Ricky Pierce shot, once he turned 31, you know, the end of his career, those 30s, shot just under 90% from the line. And he could get to the line. He'd take like 10, 11 Uh, free throw attempts per game from the line. From 1990 to 1993, he only took 485 threes. He hit him at a little under 35%. So it seems like he could have, you know, just with a little practice, a little bit more diligence and focus on that, could have been extending his range. You know, he was plenty good on catch and shoot. He would float off screens. Not phenomenal off ball, but he could play that way. The totality of this thing for Pierce was just a scoring machine. His three-year postseason scoring run from 1989 to 1991, which are the years I want to focus on here as a sixth man for him, three-year totality of that, a scoring rate of 28 and on plus 5% true shooting. Set up his teammates a little bit. He wasn't a very good passer, but when you're that good of a scorer, you can run offense through you and you can get the kickouts and things like that massive score he won six man of the year in 1990 by the way after winning it in 1987 and as I said I think sort of his peak period here as a six man is anywhere in this run from 1989 to 1991 the problem is if you're thinking wow those numbers sound huge and you know why isn't this player higher why aren't the sort of advanced stats jumping off the page well they they're picking up on something which is his defense he was a weak defender. There's there's some similarity here with me to Lou Williams in the sense that Pierce wouldn't necessarily get 35 or 40 minutes per game in huge high-level games or whatever because he was a weak defender, because you're giving something back by having him out there. His foot speed wasn't very good. He could get taken off the dribble. He was a little soft off the ball, and then his team instincts weren't very good. So to me, I think you're just talking about a fairly decent negative defender at the guard position okay a couple more we'll get to the top 10 wow I talked about how I was 
you know, moving right along. And now I'm realizing we haven't even started the top 10 and we're like 25 minutes into this thing. Classic Taylor takeoff to start this podcast. Um, that's a True Lies reference. 1994. Check it out. Andre Kirilenko is the last guy I want to talk about. He would become, obviously, a fantastic player in you know his third and fourth season in Utah. But his second season, he was growing. He was improving. He was flying around the court. He was coming off the bench for them. And I think this is also a sixth-man season worthy of acknowledging in this sub-all-star range. I'm not entirely quite sure how to stratify it because I do think he was probably showing the signs of growth that would stick in year three. But, I mean, defensively, his length was just crazy, bounced around the court, um, could guard different positions. You know, one of the games I was re-watching for this was a, a Jazz-Lakers game from 2003 when Kobe was on fire just in the middle of an incredible scoring run without Shaq. And they play Utah, and Karolinko comes in the game off the bench. And first possession, he chases him around the screen, doesn't stay tight enough. Kobe catches it, turns, quick release jumper. Second possession, very similar. Kobe kind of get, gets it on his spot in the pinch post area, as he did with the triangle, um, faces up, and gets it off over Karolinko. Next time down, they go to Kobe, they isolate. He sets him up for this beautiful fadeaway. And Karolinko, like he is Inspector Gadget or something, sticks out this giant broomstick of an arm and absolutely inhales Kobe Bryant's fadeaway. And I thought, I was like, wow, I have seen that shot a thousand times. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody do that to it. So the tape keeps running. (laughs) I'm sticking with this game. I want to see what happens. Next time comes down, next next time down, uh, Kobe gets it on the same wing, sort of right side, near side, as you're watching, and gets into the triple threat position, isolated, makes a move to the right, shot clock's winding down, Karolinko comes over on help, blocks it out of bounds. Okay, so now there's a couple seconds left on the clock. It's back-to-back blocks. They get it in uh, to Kobe with like two seconds left on the clock. He pump fakes in the lane, tries to put it up. Karolinko blocks it again. So it's like, three blocks of Kobe Bryant's jumper or shot in a minute and he was just that kind of disruptive force as a player super long uh, kind of switchy in terms of the types of players he could guard two threes and fours and things like that active moving on offense also an interesting kind of offensive player the way he played you know never had a great mid-range game was a decent passer Uh, he already was a decent passer at this point in his second season but I think he'd clearly get better in his third and fourth season and he was very active off the basketball like lots of bouncing and moving into open spaces and cutting so he's an interesting player I'm sure uh, Utah fans or faithful will chime in at LG35 on Twitter with slightly more detail about that particular that 2003 season I had a hard time pegging that it was one of those things where not only do you feel like with a player like Karolinko you want to go through his film in detail like he's just a player I feel like you have to watch a lot of to really appreciate all the stuff he does but when he's in the middle of that growth spurt in from year one to year three right in the middle of it in year two oh I was like ah I'm not exactly sure where to put this
Now, you're going to notice a pattern. At least I did. And I don't know what to make of this. I haven't done any research on it, which includes just, you know, whether it's random noise or if it's actually anything. But Karolinko is a European player. My number 10 guy, again, six-man peak seasons. My number 10 guy is Detlef Schrempf, one of the early great European players from Germany. Here we're talking about 1991, 1992, 1990 to 1992. Let's say that. One of the key things for Detlef was his outside shooting had come along by 1990. Uh, Again, they didn't take many threes back then, but from 1990 to 1992, we took about 150-plus threes, and he hit 35% of them combined. I think given his shooting skill and touch, he actually could have been a really good three-point shooter. Like NBA Live back then treated him like a phenomenal shooter from twos and threes. And I think I remember that for some reason because he was so good in that game because of his shooting. And then you watched him in real life and he had that touch, but the numbers didn't necessarily align with that. Like I said, really good touch um, in the paint on shorter shots. He did like to hold the ball a lot while setting up, which is something I didn't love, but could pound you a little bit in the post. And certainly Indiana would run stuff through him where they would get it down in the post, you know, maybe Miller would make the entry pass, cut through, and then Shrimp would play make. Uh, Detlef would, if a double came, he could kick it out. Solid passer, uh, not a great passer, but enough pressure with his scoring in the regular season to set up his teammates. He had a good handle for his size. I mean, we're talking about like a good 6'10 guy. And so Indiana would sometimes play him at center. And so you had these small ball matchups. And if you put a lumbering big on him, he would start way out at the three-point line on the perimeter, and he could get by you either way. His handle was good enough to get by you in either direction. The scoring in the regular season was phenomenal, 19 to 20 points per 75, and then like plus 8, plus 9% true shooting. His, his game, he's just one of those guys that if he had you on the block, he would kind of put you in a blender a little bit, one big bounce, rhythm move, get to the fadeaway, get to the get to the lean in, maybe draw a foul if the double comes, he punishes it. Just a really nice offensive player. One of my concerns with him though is the scoring didn't hold in the playoffs. So in those couple playoff seasons, the efficiency went down to like plus two percent instead of plus eight percent. The other thing with Shrimp that I think probably always kept him from being a key cog on teams versus you know he was always like third guy fourth guy something like that and the thing that probably prevented him from making all-star teams was on the other end of the court on defense just not a very good defender and whether you played him at the four or the five you were not really getting much value uh you know okay rebounder in certain positions things like that but not a shot blocker not vertical uh didn't have great defensive instincts great you know, defensive uh, sort of reaction time and things like that. And he was a touch soft physically and, you know, didn't didn't have great foot speed either. When he went out and guarded the ball, uh, one of the clips I watched just this week, he was guarding Larry Bird in 1991. That's, That's the oldest, like, possible Larry Bird you can get, 1991, 1992. Bird faces him up from 24 feet, blows right by him off the dribble. So my preference here is another 
four and sixth man. At number nine, these guys are all super close. We are now talking about players who are still probably in my sub-all-star range because of the limitations I'm pointing out, but we're getting close to all-star level players who came off the bench. And my number nine from Croatia, the sensation Tony Kukoc. And specifically 1996, 1997, he picked up a sixth man of the year in 1996. It's about 27, 28 years old. I do think this is like the peak of his career. And he has said, you know, maybe if I played somewhere else, I could have had bigger numbers and been an all-star and things. I think that's true. I think he probably would have picked up an all-star game or two playing on a team where he had more, uh, you know, his numbers were a little bit inflated because of that. But this is a guy who was playing relatively big minutes, um, 35 minutes a game in 1995 for the Bulls. He was never a huge scorer, but he had a nice scoring game that got him to about you know, 20 points per 75, plus 4 to 5% efficiency. But the thing I love about Tony is the combination of the passing and the spacing and shooting from up top. And again, for that era, he didn't have, you know, he wasn't a scorching 40% three-point shooter or anything like that, but he could hit them. He could space you out. Uh, he could even come off screens a little bit. He was very mobile and fluid and sort of dexterous for a 6'10 kind of guy. In fact, there was talk like, you know, this is really a small forward back then. He's not a traditional big. He's just a very tall perimeter player. And so he could handle it, quick trigger pass, really, really good interior passes in short space, dynamic extra passes around the hoop, things like that. And all of that together for Kukoc, to me, always made him a relatively solid uh, offensive piece on a good team. He just happened to be on, you know, at that point in time, the greatest team ever. So he was completely overshadowed by Jordan and Pippen on that end. But, you know, Tony was a key to a lot of the stuff they tried to do. And if you go back and you watch that second three-peat, there are many playoff games where Kukoc is essentially playing a stretch five. They would have Rodman defend the five at the other end, depending on the matchup. But you could space the court more. You could open the lane. You could get Kukoc to the top. And at the top, you could take advantage of the fact that you had to respect his shooting. He could be a matchup problem. If you put a small guy on him, he could put take you to the post. And the result was, you know, a very good offensive player. Three-year postseason scoring numbers down a little bit as well, much like Detlef. Um, but I actually think I prefer Kukoc's size, and he would use that really long arm to get rebounds on both ends. He could occasionally block a shot. I kind of prefer him defensively. I think they're both questionable defensively, but that would be a tiebreaker to me if I had to pick between these two guys at 10 and 9. Okay, now we start to get into all-starry seasons, if such a word can be coined. Is that a word? If that's not a word, if I go to dictionary.com and all-starry is not a word, where do we complain to? Is there a service where we can make something a word? Let me know if you know anything about this. Uh, number eight, fittingly, Kobe Bryant, 1998. That's right. He was a sixth man once. He actually made the all-star game this year in 1998, coming off the bench as a sixth man because he was so exciting. Played 26 minutes per game behind two other all-stars 
in the Lakers' backcourt. They had Shaq up front, and he came off the bench behind Nick Van Exel and Eddie Jones, historically underrated player. Kobe that season, you know, I struggle sort of with the finality of that year. He really uh, kind of faded out in the playoffs. He averaged about nine points per game, only played 20 minutes per game in the postseason. There were other things going on there that can contribute to that behind the scenes or politically just I'm not talking about any big blockbuster things here I'm just saying you know you're an up-and-coming player you have four all-stars on the team the coaching staff might turn over stuff like that and as the season ended it was sort of an unceremonious fizzle point but I try not to get too stuck on that because it's very clear to me watching from 1997 to 1999 that this is a year where he started to grow on both sides of the court. He was a little bit more physically sturdy out there. His defense started to get a little better because, of course, he had those tools and then athleticism. And then on offense, he was just such a punchy, explosive scorer that it's hard for me to think in a lot of other situations where he wasn't coming off the bench, he wouldn't be right at this all-star-ish level. In the regular season, average 23 points per 75, plus 2% scoring. The passing also would come on a little bit in the ensuing seasons, but he could already you know, set up his teammates a little bit, had just the repertoire, the, the shades of the repertoire with the fadeaway and the footwork, the ability to get by people with the first step, get to the rim. The impact numbers aren't great either but is you know box plus minus things those those sorts of things are in the twos and two and a halves and and whatnot uh so another difficult guy for me to rank but i'm gonna put him eighth speaking of difficult the rookie from lithuania arvidas sabonis so of course sabonis the sort of this russian basketball legend had a number of injuries and age catch up with him by the time he made it to the league in 1996 in Portland. And in that season, he actually came off the bench for basically the entire season. I'm pushing the criteria here a bit because he did start in the playoff series. But I want to make an exception because the other thing with Arvidas is he was never going to play huge minutes anyway, given his physical condition and his health. Played about 24, 25 minutes a game in the regular season in the playoffs. 35 minutes per game in just that five-game small sample, but he was always around the low 30s at that point in his career in Portland once he switched to a starter in the ensuing seasons. If you're not familiar with Sabonis' game, he had three-point range. Uh, He could post you up. He had a little hook and spin move if he could get to his right. When he went the other way, he kind of just used size a lot and could sometimes get in trouble, but Um, used power at that point in time, liked ball fakes, very crafty. He's legendary as a passer. I will say in his rookie year, the signs of the passes were there, but even then there's some adjustment in terms of just being able to make all of the incredible over-the-head, behind-the-back passes that you want, but a very good extra passer. And because of that three-point shot, go back to what I said about Kukoc, Portland could put him up top, space the court, and then if it came to him... He could either hit it, you know, 37% from downtown back then, taking more threes than most other big men, or he could make great extra passes. In fact, a number of times in going back and trying to find footage from that season, you could see 
the Blazers would kick it to him off top, up top after a post double on the block. And the weak side defender would have to pick, hey, do I stay with this other guy in the post or is Sabonis going to kick it to the wing for a three because our entire defense is sagged in? And if you made the wrong choice, he would burn you. He was really good at that pass up top. The other thing I like about Sabonis here that that makes me think, you know, this is probably an all-star level season in the NBA. It's not just watching him back in the day or watching him in the uh, you know FIBA games with Lithuania and things like that, where he's smart and would move to little places. It's the defense. He's so big and long that, yes, he lacks foot speed, but he would get in the paint, uh, bang into you. He could block shots from the weak side. I think he's also a positive defender. And I think the combination of being a positive defender, a positive offensive player, an offensive player that has a kind of game that can scale – um, I mean, look, his impact numbers that year in my box plus minus model, he's almost plus four. We have plus minus then. So the augmented plus minus puts him at a little under plus three, carries this over in the playoffs. Um, in 1996 and 1997, he actually missed 15 games for the Blazers, where the rest of the lineup stays the same. And in those 15 games, they were about minus one in net rating. And with him, they're about plus three. And I think that's a fairly decent representation of the idea that even though in one of those seasons he came off the bench, Sabonis was a pretty key guy for that team, and he was still pretty good at that point in time. I'll even add defensively that he has more mobility back then. If you caught him at the end of his career in Portland when he was even slower, I mean, he has a little bit more mobility wandering away from the hoop than you would think. And so that's kind of how I land on him being as a potential all-star type player coming off the bench. Okay, number six. By the way, did you notice that run? Sabonis, seven, outside of Kobe at eight. Then you go back to Kukoc, Detlef Schrempf, Andre Kirilenko. I mean, it's just European player after European player in these positions where they're coming off the bench before becoming stars and sometimes you know getting more notoriety. Number six is a player incredibly similar to to Andre Kirilenko. Kind of like frighteningly similar in some cases, in my opinion. That's Bobby Jones. Philadelphia 76ers, 1980-1981. He again went back to the bench in 1983. Uh, Bobby Jones, interesting Bobby Jones factoid. When he was in the ABA in, I think, 1976, the last season of the ABA, Julius Irving almost won a unanimous MVP. They had you know, a handful of writers who cover the league vote on MVP. And he got almost every every vote. And Bobby Jones got one vote for the Denver Nuggets. And Bobby Jones was never a great offensive player. He was never a big scorer. What he was was a, a defensive dynamo, um, being able to guard different forward positions, chase them around, harass them, use some length, incredible motor on both ends. And so... You ended up with a guy, for instance, in my box plus minus model, he peaks at a little under plus four. But then we also have the plus minus data from Philadelphia way back in that day because of Harvey Pollock. And he was the leading, you know, plus minus guy. If you look at that version of impact by landslide on the 1980-1981 team, he was again near the top on the championship team in 1983. And a lot of this came from his very physical very smart, very long, very athletic defense 
Very good rebounder, too. He'd get in there and bang on the glass on both ends. And on offense, much like Kirilenko, he was active cutting without the ball. He didn't necessarily run through run offense through him, but he would get to the offensive glass that way, or he'd get uh, downhill and cut and surprisingly uh, took a large number of free throws based on that style. About seven to eight free throw attempts per 100. Ended up averaging about 19 points per 75 on plus 7% efficiency in 1980 and 1981. You get a stat line like that, by the way, by not doing inefficient stuff. By not demanding things go through you and take difficult shots and mid-rangers and forcing things. You kind of do the opposite. And you end up with cleanup points, layups, uh, you know, active transition stuff, whatever. Jones, by the way, did make four NBA All-Star teams, including one in 1981. And as I said, the impact data uh, looks very favorably on him when we go back in time. Okay, number five, let's stick with defense. Because as I said, you know, a lot of these guys, the six-man seasons over the years have been lauded for offense but not necessarily defense so at number five he finished fourth in 2015 and then second in 2016 Andre Iguodala who for my money is probably the most underrated perimeter defender of all time meaning he should be in the discussion for greatest perimeter defenders I don't know if he ends up as the best perimeter defender I don't know if you end up putting him on the other side of the discussion, which is probably where I would lean, um, just because I don't know if in certain periods his his sort of uh, horizontal game as a team help defender was at the level it needed to be, to be the greatest perimeter defender of all time, quote-unquote perimeter. I mean, you 6'6 six, six wing and you guard wings and things like that. But just a phenomenal perimeter defender and... Always cracked me up in that 2016 season that, again, the scoring, Jamal Crawford won out, the the glitz and the glamour of the crossover and the highlights and the big scoring bursts won out over a guy. Like, it's hard for me to think of any championship-level team where I would be digging, salivating at the idea of getting Jamal Crawford over Andre Iguodala. Iguodala, 30 to 32 minutes per game off the bench. Uh, Now we're talking about a guy playing at a low all-star level, in my opinion. Uh, Of course, the defense, the man defense, the hands, physical strength to be able to bang and hold off people from the positions that they want. So in the 2015 finals, when you can guard LeBron and LeBron is still a tank, uh, you know, you have the ability to kind of keep him away from his spots most of the time all-time level hands, but he's also very crafty, very thoughtful, using his hands, battling for position, the way he comes off screens. For instance, if you look at the end of game two in 2019 in the playoffs last season against Portland, there's a play at the end of game two there versus Damian Lillard where he saw Lillard use a step back move earlier in the game, I think against the clock. And so he's actually talked about this in an interview. He said, when that moment came, he figured to look for that step back again, anticipates it, 
And when Lillard goes to create the separation and the step back, naturally that right forearm comes out. He's dribbling with his left hand over on the far side of the court. That right forearm comes out and Andre hooks, kind of hooks himself onto that forearm as, you know, to prevent himself from stumbling backwards. That allows him to stay on Lillard. It kind of breaks Lillard's momentum down. He loses the ball briefly, recovers it, goes to shoot, and Iguodala is just all over him and gets the hands in for the strip. And you can see these kinds of phys- uh, mental adjustments, these kind of analytical notes sprinkled into his game. Obviously, that swipe down that he has, he's the master of it. He uses angles really well to sort of like a boxer to keep the right length when he's on you in man-to-man situations. But he's athletic enough and has good enough size that he can help. Uh, like I said, I don't love it, but he can get into the paint. And the thing is, he's super switchable. So he can guard, especially in the modern game, multiple positions up and down. And you can even switch him on to, to big men. And as I said, physical and strong enough to hold his own against big men. I think the thing that still tips these seasons into like you're a low-level all-star for me is the extra passing, the passing, the not a great three-point shooter, but he can make threes. Like you just put him out there on these all-time teams. There's a reason why he's a key component to the death lineup. There's a reason why he's that number four guy in the death lineup. And it's because that's a really valuable, scalable package that works on championship teams and, you know, some of the best lineups ever. At number four, James Harden, 2012 Oklahoma City. 31 to 32 minutes a game in both the regular season and the postseason. That consistent role where he comes off the bench, just insanely efficient running hide pick and rolls, side pick and rolls, whatever they were constantly doing there when he came in and they kind of let him drive offense. 21 points per 75 on plus 13% true shooting. Created shots for his teammates, five or six a game. He was a decent passer then, would certainly become a better passer, but already a solid shooter. Uh, 39% from three, 85% from the line. The impact metrics make him look like a strong, sturdy all-star player. I, I do think that there's a tendency sometimes to overstate these kind of years because he was giving a lot back defensively. I think at this point in his career, he was a really, re- really weak perimeter defender, but such a skilled offensive player already at that point in time. Kind of, I, I remember when he went to Houston in 13, and I said, well, you've essentially acquired an all-star level player. You know, for, did not expecting him to become the player he became and continue to grow and go into All-NBA and be an MVP candidate and all that stuff, but just already that package that he had with the way he played, the efficiency uh, and craft around his shot selection, using angles to get to the rim, everything. This, to me, one of the better six-man seasons in league history. At number three, 1967, John Havlicek. And now we are talking about a guy, Havlicek in 1967, who was probably pushing all NBA for me, you know, definitely an all-star high level all-star. And you could start to talk about him being an all NBA level wing. He would obviously peak a few years later, but 
he was still a six man in 1967. He came on as a starter at the end of the Philadelphia series only. But in the 1966 playoffs, he also had a few starts and things like that. So, you know, I'm being a little liberal maybe, but certainly 1965, he was a six man. And I think 66 and 67, he kind of qualifies here in 67 in that stretch is, you know, that's obviously his best season. He's getting closer to his peak. I've talked a lot about Havlicek lately in terms of off-ball movement, but very strong defender for his era. I don't think a 6'5", 6'6", whatever, sturdy forward gives you defensive player of the year impact, defensive player of the year kind of impact, but he was a positive defender for his era, did have a high motor, kind of used his length decently, um, solid rebounder, solid in transition, solid passer. I've talked about a lot of the other stuff lately, so I'll refer back to those podcasts, but this is just a player by 1967 who is a sturdy all-star for me. And that leaves the top two. And yes, I would say at this point, for the top two six-man peaks in NBA history, we are talking about all NBA-level players. So number two for me is Kevin McHale, 1984. 1985, he was a six-man in the regular season, but he started the entire postseason. So that didn't feel like it met my criteria, really. When push came to shove, he wasn't close to a six-man in that season. But in 1984, really good defensively. Uh, He was long, rangy. He had really nice reaction times for paint cuts or stuff happening on the weak side. Back then, these rotations were way shorter. So you kind of only went to your block or you were worried about your guy involved in a screen on the other side of the paint. And you had to have some awareness and reaction to take a step or two back toward the rim early when action on the weak side was developing and breaking down. And he was really good at that. Uh, Had block percentages of around like four to five back then. He was long. He was rangy. He was switchable. He'd play the four or the five. But... Remember, in the next couple years, Bird would start next to him, and so sometimes against certain wings, he would step out and use that length and that mobility to guard wings. He just already was a really good impact defender as a big for me, and then 1984 is when the scoring starts to come. That Kevin McHale poo-poo platter of scoring, you know, uh, gives you the right and left shoulder turnaround or fadeaway really quickly when you throw it into him. Uh, He had the up and under that was starting to develop because of that shot. He was a good shooter, like a really nice shooter. If you gave him 16, 17 footers when you were open, he could catch and shoot it, uh, catch and shoot and hit that, but he could also catch it, turn and face, and hit that right right in your eye if you didn't get up on it. Um, He was already 77% from the line at that point in his career. That would develop uh, into the 80s in the next few seasons, and that combination of offensive scoring and defense is enough to get you to start talking about an all-NBA player for me. Obviously, his, uh, he's known as sort of the black hole. His passing is a weak spot, but he's, a, he's an interesting passer to me because he had the ability, even back in 1984, one of the games I was watching, he threw a really nice high-low entry, like really advanced. And so he was a guy who was always looking to score really quickly or active on the glass. By the way, used his length on both ends to be an impact rebounder. But when it came to passing, 
he could make certain passes that were really nice passes, but he also missed a lot of passes or wasn't looking to make a lot of passes or set up teammates per se. And so it's less about playmaking and shot creation and extra passing with Mikhail and more about just that dominant post-scoring that gives you another angle along with a uh, offensive, active offensive rebounder, just that overall package plus the defense. That leaves only one. And I'm sure there are many people who think career-wise he's the greatest six-man of all time. I'm not going to argue with that. I've never really thought about other really long careers. I know Michael Cooper played his whole career as a six-man. Schrempf had many years as a six-man. But this guy, to me, solid, all-NBA-level player, coming off the bench legitimately. The years I'll use here, 2007 and 2008, and that is from Argentina, Manu Ginobili. Another foreign guy. I mean, what can we say about Manu Ginobili? He had a step back. You gave him space, he'd hit a step back three. Then he'd give you the up fake. Then he'd get, you, then he'd get by you with a little quick step. And he was so crafty around the rim, but the master of varying stride length using his body to shield you. And and this, of course, gave birth or, or popularized the Eurostep, but it was more than the Eurostep with Manu. That stride length and variation and timing and syncopatic thing he had going on, that entire package, just made him way, way, way better as a rim finisher than he should have been for a 6'4 guy with his wingspan and his vertical pop athletically. Just unbelievable to watch how the angles, the way he took his steps, uh, how he slowed them down or sped them up, and then getting to little spots where he could, you know, get to the other side of the rim and use it as protection and spin it off the backboard. As I said, good shooter, good spot up shooter, good free throw shooter. Uh, later, he became a very good passer. I'd say at this point, he was a solid passer. But 2007, 2008, he was active and smart off the ball. Uh, I mentioned catch and shoots, but a good cutter. But he could also run pick and roll. He ran a lot on ball. And as I said, when he got downhill, he was dangerous. He was quick to get to step backs and little pull-ups on you, quick release. Uh, had a good handle. Loved to use that behind the back to change directions. He could navigate screens and get downhill. And uh, his change of direction in that stride leg near the hoop was... All-time good. If you went low under the screen and give him space, he'd hit it. If you got up on it, he'd go by you. And you couldn't give him a mid-range either. Back in those days, he would take a little elbow jumper as well if he had some space. So all this means, you know, you're taking 28 to 32 minutes a game with Ginobili. And you're talking about a guy who's like a 22, 23 points per 75 scorer plus 5% efficiency, created shots for his teammates, a good passer, and on the other end, on defense, a good defender. Physical, smart, long, pesky, annoying, knew when to rotate, knew where to be in the team concept, kind of made up for his lack of size, if you will, as a shooting guard, and always played with such a high motor. I think that's one of the reasons why Ginobili is legitimately a six-man in the sense that, A, 
you know, you want to want to have them out there running the second unit and exploiting people who are weaker and things like that. All these six men numbers are skewed a little bit because they play so much against second units. But B, and more importantly, in his case, in young McHale's case and whatever, if you have a really high burning motor and that's the way you play, you can't play 40 or 42 minutes a game like that. You're more built to go out there in these explosive stints and play 30, 34 minutes a night, whatever it is, just a little bit lower, and the trade-off is higher value. Uh, Manu's impact numbers, just phenomenal. Like, we're talking plus five, plus six kind of things in terms of my box plus minus or augmented plus minus. Here's a mind-blowing Ginobili stat. From 2007 to 2009, when he played, but Tony Parker or Tim Duncan sat on the bench, meaning... Ginobili's out there with a team that isn't super deep, and he's clearly going to be the central focal point of the offense as a wing, creating shots and scoring for himself. And he's going to be the focal point of the defense. In those minutes, the Spurs were still plus one, a net rating of plus one, so about a 500 team, maybe slightly better. And Ginobili averaged over 28 points per 75, on true shooting percentage, there was about two percentage points better than the league. It was about 56% true shooting at that point. That's really good. Even better, because we know he's a passer, and he creates, and he can do a lot out of the pick and roll. He created an estimated 12 shots per 100 for teammates. And so the totality of that is an offensive load of 55. And if you're familiar with offensive load, it's an estimate of how much direct involvement you have in the offense, either creating scoring for yourself or setting up your teammates for open shots. That is an enormous offensive load. That's the kind of offensive load during those years that you would see from Dwayne Wade or Kobe Bryant or Derek Rose, some guy whose everything is revolving around him. And so, well, that's not quite exactly the footprint of like a super duper star, high level, all time offensive player. It's not that far away. It's a tier or so down when you see that the guy has skills that can allow him to scale up his scoring and creating and playmaking. But then when better offensive pieces come in, he slides back to, you know, 23, 24 points per game or per 75 possessions. And then the efficiency goes back up. Just a great player. And someone I think had the greatest six man peak in NBA history. I, I hope you've enjoyed this. I think we probably won't have a top 10 countdown for a while, at least a couple episodes. Going to try to get some guests on in the next few episodes, some great debates. But recapping this top 10, top 10 sixth man peaks of all time. Number 10, Detlef Schrempf. Number nine, Tony Kukoc, 1996-97. Schrempf was 91-92, by the way. 1998, Kobe Bryant is at number eight. Number seven is 1996, Arvidas Sabonis. Number six, 1980 and 1981, Bobby Jones. Number five, 2015 and 16, Andre Iguodala. Number four is that 2012 James Harden season. Number three is the end of John Havlicek as a six-man, 1966-1967. Number two, Kevin McHale, before he becomes a starter, 1984. And at number one, he had many of them, but his best season as a six-man, and I think 
the best six-man seasons of all time, 2007 and 2008, Manu Ginobili. That is it for this one. As always, if you want more of the stats that were used in this, you want access to these historical numbers in this database, you can support this podcast at patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. You get access to not only these stats if you sign up in certain tiers, but a Discord community where we discuss basketball. They have all-time drafts and things like that in this Discord. And we just did this past weekend our Q&A that we run every month or two in the Discord uh, where we just hang out and you all ask me questions and things of that nature. So patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. Uh, you help me support this podcast. You help me make videos. There will be more videos coming on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. And that is it for me. I hope you've enjoyed this one. Let me know your thoughts. It was a very interesting exercise to go through at LG35 on Twitter. Uh, Hope wherever you are in the world that you're staying safe and healthy and all those kinds of things these days. And as always, I hope you're having a great day. How was that for long-winded? I blew right through that. Huh? Huh? Internet?